Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, for too long in this country, we've indulged in a fight over redistribution. This time last year, Kwasi Kwarteng delivered his fateful mini-budget. And I commend it to the House. Tim Montgomery, a well-known Conservative commentator, tweeted that this was a massive moment for the IEA. They've been advocating these policies for years. They incubated trust and quarting during their early years as MPs. Britain is now their laboratory. The director of the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, Mark Littlewood, shared it approvingly with a single character, a smiling sunglasses emoji. He agreed. You know what happened next? The pound tumbled. Quasi Quarteng was sacked, and soon enough, Liz Truss resigned. It passed like a crazy fever dream, with only higher mortgage rates and higher inflation to prove it was all real. So, for this week's episode, I've picked what is still a controversial topic one year on. I'm diving inside the role some free market think tanks really play in our politics. I meet the co-founder of one of them, Madsen Perry, and hear his candid account of how they wield influence. Our main role was beating the drum, going out in public, tirelessly appearing on television and radio and in the newspapers, writing articles and just remorselessly plugging the free market case. I meet the man who beats the drum against so-called dark money in politics, Peter Gagan, and hear his strident criticisms of how these think tanks operate. Those arguments are not taking place from a specifically neutral perspective. They are taking place from an aligned perspective and the people who are funding it are completely hidden. And I reveal how close the IEA really was, and still is, to Liz Truss and her whole tax-cutting project with the help of an anonymous IEA member of staff who witnessed it all. In the beginning, everyone was kind of excited by it. And I don't know, I guess we all kind of got caught up in the hype, really. So from Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And this week on Westminster Insider, I'm asking, how did free market think tanks take over Westminster? London, 1945. The war in Europe is over, and the Labour Party under Clement Attlee has just won a landslide in the general election. The sweeping victories throughout the country mark an epoch in the political life 
of this country. In a pokey office down an alleyway in the city of London, an old Etonian called Anthony Fisher and his friend, Major Oliver Smedley, were railing against the consensus of the time. All around them, there was agreement that state control and state ownership was the best way to revive the economy. Fisher hated it. He went to see Friedrich Hayek, a famous neoliberal economist who happened to be teaching just down the road at the London School of Economics. Fisher said to Hayek he was worried about the spread of socialism and the role the state wanted to play in people's lives. He wanted to stop it. He wanted to go into politics. But Hayek told him not to bother. Politicians, he said, are trapped by prevailing public opinion. Hayek told him, don't become a politician. Change the way politicians think. So Fisher went away and, in 1955, founded an organisation to do exactly that. To change the climate of opinion around politics itself. To provide politicians with thoughts and ideas they could regurgitate. Hayek called it being a second-hand dealer in ideas. So Fisher, from his pokey offices on Austin Friars in the city of London, launched what would become the first modern-day think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA. Over the next several decades, the IEA would begin to cultivate relationships with MPs and beat the drum for free market economics, lower taxes, less state intervention, more freedom for businesses and consumers. And another think tank joined the effort. Well, the... ASI occupied a, a rather strange position on the political spectrum. Uh, those people on the right tend to be liberal on economic matters and not so liberal on social matters. And those on the left are the other way around. Liberal on social policies, but restrictive on, on economic matters. We uh, occupied that position up in the top corner, liberal on both, on both social issues and on economic issues. And we called ourselves a libertarian free market think tank. Madsen Perry co-founded the Adam Smith Institute in 1977. He's now in his 80s, and these days he's still president of the ASI, where he pops in in the mornings before going for a long lunch. You'll find him at the ASI's drinks receptions, where he will regale you with stories about Margaret Thatcher. And you'll know him by the perfect bow tie. So take me back then to the mid-1970s. You founded the Adam Smith Institute. Was it here or...? It was always in Westminster, yeah. but it was founded in the flat we were living in. It was founded on a shoestring. Um, the, 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 that flat is about uh, 50 metres from the current ASI office. We didn't have an office until a few years later when we started to expand a bit. So you were doing it on a shoestring? Yes. Myself and Damon Butler, they used to say... It's two men and a dog without the dog. <laughs> Whatever view the Prime Minister may take about the situation in Britain, the opposition took the view that we were in a position of grave trouble of crisis proportions. Margaret Thatcher was leader of the opposition as the ASI and the IEA began to wield influence among MPs. And Thatcher founded another free market think tank, the Centre for Policy Studies, on the famous Tufton Street. Together, these free market think tanks were essential to creating the intellectual landscape that allowed her ideas to flourish. 
So how did you begin to get your ideas heard and, and have a bit of influence in Westminster? The first thing you do is marketing. Uh, we used to say there's no point in having the best idea in the world if only the milkman gets to hear of it. So you've got to um, speak with a loud voice. And um, marketing was, was always part of what we were determined to do. When we um, published a list of all the quangos, Quangos, for those not in the know, are quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organisations. So, organisations that government has delegated some powers to, but that are still, in part, controlled or funded by government. 3,065 of them. We put it on a single piece of paper. So when you opened the book, out dropped a 12-foot page. And we had Sir Philip Holland, the, the author, photographed on the House of Commons terrace with that page blowing in the wind. And we machine printed copies of it and sent it to all the papers. And it appeared in the front page of most of the papers the next day. It was a marketing ploy just to indicate how big the, the Quango state had become. And it proved very successful. And, and things marketing on that kind of scale uh, is basically what you have to do. We would do a press release for our research publications. And the press release would basically uh, do the journalists' work for them. They just have to change a few words to make it their own and put their own name at the bottom and send it off to copy. As all good press releases should. <laughs> yes, exactly so. <laughs> make our lives easier. So press releases and marketing were a big part of it. Tell me about the relationship with politicians and, and sort of fostering relationships with MPs. We were always determined from the very beginning we were going to do this in public, not in private. Otherwise, they'd stand up in Parliament and introduce a new idea and people would say, he's gone crazy. Instead, you, you publicise the ideas, you get them into the press, in public. So our relationship with um, legislators was largely in the public domain. We, we wouldn't meet with them privately, we'd meet with them publicly at conferences that were open to the press. Uh, we, we, our publications, we, we gained as much press and TV coverage as we could uh, in order that the ideas would be discussed. So I get the impression that, I think this is still true to this day, that the ASI really values the power of socialising and having fun alongside discussing policy, that often this place is, is host to drinks receptions, um, giving people opportunities to meet each other. There's a chapter in your book called Policy Over Lunch. Can you tell me about the importance of lunch to promoting your ideas and, and getting them out there? It's important not to bore people, um, and we, we <coughs> invented the lunchtime conference in which we'd, uh, we'd meet to have a glass of wine and, um, and then sit down at a table, and we'd have two 10-minute speeches, and then we'd, we'd finish eating, and then there'd be another two 10-minute speeches. And we'd an absolute gem working part-time for us who had the unique ability to turn spoken English into written English, and she would transcribe all of those, uh, and each one would become the chapter of a publication, and four of them, plus an introduction by me or Eamon, uh, would, would give us a, a book. So we'd get publicity for the conference itself, the lunchtime conference. Press loved them, by the way, because there was drink available. And the press in those days floated on a sea of alcohol. Indeed, uh, in one of those we held was on uh, funding for the arts. And uh, Kingsley Amis came along and gave a speech saying no, there should be no public funding for the arts because it distorted artistic vision. You, you should be motivated internally, not by the hope of state subsidies. And when he came in and he, he was asked, do you want red wine or white? 
his faces, he had three of them, fell a mile. And he said, oh, don't you have any real drink? And I said, leave this to me. And I went downstairs and came up with a triple Glenfiddich. He drank two of those before lunch. And then he had lunch and he drank two of them after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, t- you talk about sort of meeting MPs publicly. Tell me a bit more about those, about those relationships, the importance of the kinds of questions they were asking at Prime Minister's questions, that kind of thing. We would often um, use what we called the nutcracker. We would go inside and outside simultaneously. Outside, we would publish the paper, the research studies, in the press and television and so on. And then uh, inside, we would get a, a backbencher to ask the Prime Minister or the Foreign Secretary or the Agriculture Minister, have they read the recent um, Adam Smith Institute publication? And da, 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 which means that at least one of the civil service has to read the damn things. <laughs> so the minister will be, will be able to stand up and answer the questions. So as I say, outside and inside, simultaneously to crack the nut. Mm. I gather you had relationships with Conservative and Labour MPs. Um, how did you kind of work out which MPs would be most interested? We actually did an index of um, the way MPs had voted on votes where there was no whip or where the whipping was so ineffective that it it didn't count. And we produced an index of uh, MPs, how they'd voted over a a one-year period, and we plotted it on a graph. Left and right is... is, um, economic freedom or not, uh, up and down is social freedom or not. And we were interested in the ones in in that top right-hand corner. Mm -hmm. And those were the ones we tended to approach and contact because we knew from their voting record Mm -hmm. they were already sympathetic to the ideas we stood for. What else can a backbencher meaningfully do? Or how else would that relationship have, have worked between... MPs and the ASI. If you send your publication um, cold to members of parliament, in at least 50% of cases it will end up in the waste bin, and in the other 50% it will be given to one of their young researchers. If an MP sends it to his or her colleagues with compliments, it'll go to the, the member themselves and they're more likely to, to read it or ask one of their staff to summarise it for them. Uh, they, they are very attentive to each other and... and uh, a request uh, from uh, an MP to another MP is always dealt with courteously. Outlining the future of Britain under her leadership, Premier Thatcher has been quite specific. Less taxation, more production through incentive and a firmer line on defence. As Margaret Thatcher moved from opposition into government, the free market think tanks were crucial to framing the debate in her image. I'd say our main role was in in beating the drum, uh, going out in public, tirelessly appearing on television and radio and in the newspapers, writing articles and just remorselessly uh, plugging the the free market uh, case. Uh, Fundamentally, the the time was on our side because the post-war Keynesian consensus had been shown to be a complete failure. Britain was sick man of Europe and... Everyone knew that something else had to replace it. Well, we were amongst the groups proposing something that could replace it. And uh, between us all, uh, the IEA, CPS and the others, uh, we were successful. And so things like the sale of council houses and privatisation were very popular. Was that an ASI idea? Well, we we were among those banging the drum for it. We, We don't claim credit for any particular ideas. It was a team effort and we were part of part of a team. But... You were important in, I suppose, shaping with with exactly the things that you described with shaping the intellectual landscape that 
that supported Margaret Thatcher, I suppose. Yes, I mean, if you look for specific individual policies, there were quite a few of those, of course. Uh, we proposed free ports that should be introduced into the UK, and um, that was it was eventually done. So there were individual policies, but as I say, our main contribution was uh, at a, a, an intellectual level to loudly um, point out the deficiencies of state ownership and control and point out the virtues of free market competitiveness. But on a personal level, the relationship with the good lady, as Madsen Perry describes her, was a bit distant. She held receptions in Downing Street. She invited us to do a lunch with some of her ministers. But there was, a, there was no warmth to it. It was at an intellectual level. Uh, she, she, she wanted our input on ideas, and she brought in her policies from outside. And that way, if one of them was exposed and was embarrassing, we used to say distance lends deniability. She would say, well, you know, that's the, the Adam Smith Institute is a very important institute, but it does not decide government policy. So am I right in thinking that Margaret Thatcher's reign, as you describe it, was sort of the proudest time for the Adam Smith Institute in terms of seeing the most policies that you were in favour of being implemented? You'd have to couple that with John Major as well, because it did continue. We had closer access to John Major than than we did to Margaret Thatcher. But that's because everyone was used to it by then. Everyone knew that think tanks were there and how they worked. It had taken us some time to build up that head of steam with the government that came in in 1979. But uh, we'd done it by then. We've come a very long way from starting the ASI in, you know, two men and a dog minus the dog yeah. in your flat yep. to, to having a really meaningful role contributing policy. Do you mind just sort of, ref- I suppose, reflecting on, on that for me? Yes, well, it's been <laughs> very satisfying in the sense that um, surely everyone wants to make a difference in the world. They want their life to count in some way. Uh, For most people, this means simply bringing children into the world and bringing them up in such a way that they become decent citizens, um, you know, treating their fellow men and women courteously and decently. Um, In the case of others, like pop stars and movie stars and uh, sports people, they make an impact, a personal impact, and leave a difference to the world. And uh, people who work in think tanks get that second type of satisfaction sometimes as well as the first, sometimes instead of the first. Um, so it, it's nice to have made a difference. Madsen Perry really did make a difference. The ASI and that family of free market think tanks influenced politicians, changed the media landscape and had a tangible impact on how Britain was run. And the IEA and the ASI have continued to thrive into the 21st century. Madsen Perry joked to me about how the ASI perfected the art of the soundbite decades ago, and he said that the key to their success in the early days was that their name began with an A. So they were at the top of every journalist's phone book. I'm joined now by Morgan Schondelmeyer, who's Head of External Affairs at the Adam Smith Institute. And these days, they're still masters at the media game. This is uh, Director of the Institute of Economic Affairs and joins us now from Central London. Good morning to you. They always pick up the phone to TV bookers or journalists, and they're staffed with ambitious, sharp, articulate young people who are happy to appear on TV or radio 
at a moment's notice. What's this all about? Joining me now is the author of the report, Maxwell Marlowe, researcher at the Adam Smith Institute. Well, joining me to discuss this is Emily Fielder, head of communication at the Adam Smith Institute. Is Andy Meyer, the chief operating officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Welcome to the programme, Andy. But if you're on social media, you'll know that every time someone from the IEA or ASI is on TV, even a former staff member, they're bombarded by messages all asking the same thing. Who funds you? What's different with the right of centre think tanks is almost none of them declare anything about their, their funding. So that's why if you hear them being on the radio, on TV, people go, who funds you? And full disclosure, when I was the editor-in-chief at Open Democracy, we took over the Who Funds You projects, which rates think tanks. And what you will see if you look at that is the most uh, transparent think tanks tend to sit in the centre, left to centre, and the least sit on the political right. This is Peter Gagan, an investigative journalist and the author of Democracy for Sale dark money and dirty politics. He's a particularly strident voice in highlighting the fact that, unlike political parties or politicians or other think tanks, the ASI, the IEA, the Taxpayers' Alliance and the other so-called Tufton Street free market think tanks don't declare where their funding comes from. The fact that organisations are unwilling to declare who funds them, I think is really problematic because you have to ask the question, well, why wouldn't you? I put that to Madsen Perry, the ASI's co-founder. When they ask, uh, how are you funded? We reply, inadequately, because that's always been true. And when they say, um, who funds you? Uh, we always say, well, it is people who don't get excrement shoved through their letterboxes, who don't get their businesses boycotted and their windows broken, who don't get their children assaulted on the way to school. We're very proud of the fact that the privacy we give to our donors uh, is very important and we, we protect them from the abuse. Politics has reached such a stage in Britain that there are fanatics and bigots out there prepared to do anything. They believe their cause is so just that even the most outrageous behaviour they think is justified. If we published a list of our donors, we know they'd be subject to a vile torrent of abuse and bad behaviour. I don't buy that, if I'm being honest. Peter Gagan has his own take on that, using the example of the IEA. The Conservative Party are, I would say, far more unpopular than the IEA. They have to publish all the details (laughs) of their political donors on the Electoral Commission website. Anybody in the country can go and see it. Their donors don't have stones thrown at them and placards outside their houses. So I don't actually believe that. And I think if you look at the history of what we know about the funding of the IEA and the kind of people I've reported on, I'm one of the people who has discovered aspects of the IEA's funding. They are large corporations. They're people like BP. They've had links with other industries like that, uh, tobacco industry and others. Um, they are American right-wing, um, pretty extreme right-wing um, funders who funded climate denial. They are things I think people need to know about if they're going to understand where an or- argument is coming from. People from these think tanks would probably dismiss this as conspiratorial or say that they, they don't need to declare their funding, that it wouldn't really make a difference and possibly that... You just don't like the kinds of values that they stand for, low taxes, a small state, for example. How do you how do you respond to that? What the, these think tanks are very good at doing is, is kind of presenting themselves as, as non-aligned. To a lot of voters, to someone listening, they really would think that 
you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs sounds really like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, for example. They are very different. As we know, the IFS is really seen as a neutral body and the Institute of Economic Affairs isn't. And there was some research done, I reported on my book, where something like less than 1% of the population in Britain could name a think tank. And that shows where influence can happen without really people understanding where it's coming from. So they all sound like equally neutral observers. This kind of sense of um, dispassionate kind of objectivity on the subject and I think that's where the problem is because if you're sounding like if you've you've got this kind of cloak of objectivity but actually are being funded by corporations those arguments are not taking place from a particular from a specifically neutral perspective they are taking place from a you know an aligned perspective and the people behind that alignment the people who are funding it are completely are hidden. In 2018 Greenpeace unearthed the campaign group's journalism arm did an undercover investigation to better understand how the IEA influences politicians. It was in the wake of Brexit. They posed as um, a contact for US farming uh, industry who were interested in influencing post-Brexit British rules on um, on agriculture and, and importing. They managed to get a connection into the IEA. Mark Littlewood, the head of the IEA, was secretly filmed describing what the IEA could offer in return for funding a £42,500 report on agriculture after Brexit. Here's a clip. So I would be very surprised if it doesn't say deregulate the, you know, we've got to get our regulations out to make sure that more products can come to market. And he boasts about the kind of access to politicians he says he can provide for donors. The fact that we were able to get them in to see four members of the House of Lords, five MPs for lunch, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the European Research Group. And in one particularly telling um, kind of uh, undercover remark, Mark Littlewood, the head of the IEA, says that we're in the Brexit influencing game. And he talks about how he would go and meet, have meetings with government ministers, but because he didn't want to say who was there, they would just write IEA or Mark Littlewood and others on the transparency documents. I was particularly intrigued by how the funding model works for their research. I think in your book you quote Mark Littlewood sort of explaining how that works, giving the example of the alcohol industry. Yes, there's there's one section in uh, the Greenpeace investigation where Mark Littlewood, the IA head, explains uh, how the operation. He gives this example of the drinks industry. And he says, um, we would go to alcohol companies and say we want to write about the cost of living being too high. And actually, alcohol consumption is not costing the National Health Service as much money as they often complain. And so basically, what you're doing there is saying, look, we go to an industry, we're going to write something that we think is going to be in your interests. And we're, we're looking for funding for it. Around Westminster, obviously most people who work for these think tanks just try to dodge this question of how they're funded or make a sort of joke about it because they know that it's a big issue. But I've found that when you do engage people on it a bit more seriously, maybe after they've had a drink, um, they would say, well, look, we believe what we believe and we would believe that and be making the case for that regardless of who funded us. The, the beliefs come first, for example, low tax or less state intervention, less state regulation. And it just so happens that those beliefs align with the interests of, for example, a tobacco company. So it makes sense for them to give us money, but we're not making these arguments because we're funded by tobacco. What do you say to that? If you were so 
happy with the people you're taking money from, why not go public with it? And my concern is, and I, I think they're probably right about this, once you said actually we take money from the oil and gas industry, etc, etc, you really will find that the number of phone calls you get from broadcast producers looking to get got you on your show will diminish to the point where your influence dries up completely. And I think there's a good reason why these uh, think tanks will not declare their funding. A spokesperson for the Institute of Economic Affairs said... The majority of IEA support comes from individuals, followed by foundations and corporates, who share our mission. The IEA's editorial process is independent of any financial support. The Greenpeace claims were dismissed by the Charity Commission and the Office of the Registrar of Consultant Lobbyists. Coming up after the break, the inside story of the IEA during the Truss era. I mean, there's no secret that the IEA was... A, a kind of testing bed, nursery, if you like, of many of the ideas that we had. Yep, that's quasi quarting. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. In October 2009, a 34-year-old councillor called Elizabeth Truss was selected as the Conservative candidate for South West Norfolk. A whole load of drama followed. She was that kind of person, it turned out, involving an undisclosed affair with a married MP and an uprising from something known as the Turnip Taliban. But Tory leader David Cameron intervened and she kept her candidacy. In May 2010, Liz Truss became a Tory MP. I am very grateful to be called in today's economy debate because I believe that addressing the deficit and powering economic growth are the two most important things that this government can do. And I in this new MP, the free market think tanks find a friend. Truss immediately became a darling of Tufton Street, a regular at their drinks receptions and events. She had been at Oxford with Mark Littlewood, the head of the IEA, and they'd trodden the same path from the Liberal Democrats to free market conservatism. My name's Mark Littlewood. 
I'm the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, and I've known Liz Truss for over 25 years. Together, they quickly established the Free Enterprise Group of MPs, described by Open Democracy as the parliamentary wing of the IEA. I can remember when she came to see me shortly after being elected and sort of said to me, Mark, we are going to set up the Free Enterprise Group of Conservative MPs. Not that she was going to set it up, not would I consider setting it up, but as a fait accompli, we were going to set it up. A senior Tory says it was almost an internal Conservative Party think tank, pushing the boundaries of what was politically possible. They tried to move the dial within the party, holding dinners, events, publishing pamphlets, all funded via the IEA, using its already established funding structures. We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. When Trust made it into Cabinet, she appointed a special advisor from, you guessed it, the IEA. And this would become a theme of her career in government. As Trade Secretary, Trust was able to appoint external experts to advisory bodies in her department. And guess who she picked? Matt Kilcoyne, then the Deputy Director of the ASI, Robert Colville, Head of the CPS, and Mark Littlewood from the IEA. One of them would later describe Truss as the MP who had been the most embedded in think tanks of any British politician of the past 50 years. I am ready to be Prime Minister from day one. When Truss ran for Prime Minister, her team was staffed with free market think tank alumni who carried her all the way into number 10. We will cut taxes, helping businesses invest in their future. We'll tackle the cost of energy and will control government spending. A huge number of her policy pledges during the campaign were things the IEA had called for, from cutting taxes to reviewing the mandate of the Bank of England. And all of those who helped on this campaign, I'm incredibly grateful for all of your support. As Truss entered number 10, Mark Littlewood gave an interview to my political colleague, Matt Honeycomb-Foster, then author of the London Influence newsletter. The title, IEA or the highway. In that interview, Mark Littlewood proudly talked about Liz Truss's long-standing relationship with the think tank. He said Truss had spoken at more IEA events than any other politician over the past 12 years, even more than Margaret Thatcher back in the 70s. Littlewood also told Matt that he had high hopes for a big tax-cutting budget from Quasi Quarteng. I'm actually hoping they'll go fairly gangbusters, he said. Now, these days, the IA emphasises that they weren't directly involved in Liz Truss's premiership. But I spoke to several current and former members of IEA staff for this podcast, and it's clear how invested the IEA really felt in the Truss project. Nina, not her real name and voiced here by a producer, was working at the IEA while all of this took place. There was that big London influence about how the IEA was like Liz Truss's think tank and how we were like the brains behind it all. And Mark had a printout of that email and was kind of waving it around, like, this is what it's going to look like. The IEA disputes that version of events. Behind the scenes, two of the economists who advised Truss and Quarting were people who've been associated with the IEA for years and years publicly. Andrew Lillico and Julian Jessup, who are both IEA fellows, 
but they and the IEA distinguish that from being on staff at the think tank. Meanwhile, Mark Littlewood was proudly owning the association with trust on the airwaves. I was actually reflecting with a couple of journalists earlier. I, I've known Liz Trust for many years. It is true that I've shared a few sherbets with her over the years. Liz Truss has probably visited my think tank in the last 10 years more than any other politician in history. Right. I'd like to think that we've provided some of the intellectual groundwork for their thinking. That's when he was going on the media and being like, my good friend Liz Truss... Liz Truss and I have known each other for years and no other politician has been to the IEA more than Liz Truss. And then later, after it all came crashing down, he was like, I don't know where they got that idea from. The IEA disputes that too. Then came Quasi Quarteng's mini-budget. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. Yeah. From April the 23rd, Britain, as Tim Montgomery said, was now the IEA's laboratory. And the man himself kind of agrees. This is Quasi Quarting speaking to Aggie. We'd spoken a lot to them over, over, over many years. I think it is an important centre of you know, free market ideas, free enterprise ideas. I mean, there's no secret that the IEA was a, a kind of testing bed, nursery, if you like, of many of the ideas that we had. The Prime Minister promised that we would be a tax-cutting government. Today, we have cut stamp duty. We have allowed businesses to keep more of their own money to invest, to innovate and to grow. We have cut income tax and national insurance for millions of workers. We are In the beginning, everyone was kind of excited by it. You know, it felt like it was our time, our time to shine. It felt exciting and new. And I don't know, I guess we all kind of got caught up in the hype, really. But soon came the fallout. Now the British pound has fallen to its lowest level ever. It's ticking every second and it's, it's ticking lower. On the media, IEA representatives squirmed, trying to distance themselves from Liz Truss. I didn't You're... even support Liz Truss as Prime Minister. But the so IEA... get your facts right. But the IEA, the IEA did. The IEA did, Emily. It was up to Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng only to decide what policies they put before uh, the House of Commons. At the IEA offices, the phone stopped ringing. Then the economy tanked. So, you know, that's when, you know, I started getting hate and that we were poisoning Britain and that I should be ashamed of myself. Yeah, it was really horrible. And it's like, you know, my pay and performance were based on, like, metrics that I set back in February, like, before it all went down. And that was when it was like people refused to engage with us and it kind of fell off a cliff. After Liz Truss was forced to resign... Mark Littlewood summoned an all-staff meeting. Reading off contemporaneous notes, Nina remembers. He was talking about the radioactive backwash of the trust regime. That's a quote because I started writing down things. Her disaster is a combination of factors that can't be attributed to the IEA. He said he was not keen on having a public relationship with trust. Not long after, there were dozens of school pupils and their teachers and parents in the IA offices for an essay competition as part of the IEA's educational work. Suddenly, a team of bodyguards arrived and started to sweep the building. A few moments later, Liz Truss arrived. She was there for lunch, as she was every Monday at 12.30. Mums and dads and teachers 
were astonished to discover that this nice economics body running their essay competition was on regular lunch terms with the former Prime Minister who'd crashed the economy a few weeks before. Staff were mortified and they confronted Mark Littlewood about it at an all-staff meeting. He was blustery. He was like, she's a friend of the movement. We don't turn our back on our friends, even if they aren't, you know, like, good at being Prime Minister. Truss even got the IEA to do the recruitment for a new member of staff for her office. This isn't against the rules for recruiting MPs' staff, but it's not exactly best practice. Behind the scenes, the relationship between the IEA and Liz Truss remained strong. A spokesperson for the Institute of Economic Affairs said, The IEA is an educational charity with a mission to promote the institutions of a free society. Mark Littlewood and Liz Truss have a well-documented and long-standing friendship that dates back to their time at university. IEA spokespeople welcomed elements of Truss's agenda while criticising others, including labelling the energy price guarantee, middle-class welfare on steroids and calling for spending reductions. The IEA takes cases of abuse against its staff members by external parties on social media extremely seriously and there is support available. On the 1st of August, Mark Littlewood announced he would be stepping down from the IEA, with the think tank's chairman paying tribute to him for building the IEA into a powerful voice in the public debate. But he's understood to be in line for a peerage on Liz Truss's resignation honours list, if she ever gets to do it. Before long, it could be Arise Lord Littlewood. So, how did the free market think tanks take over Britain? It's always the same playbook. Identify and cultivate sympathetic MPs, run a slick media machine, host dinners, lunches, parties, and don't be boring. And then every so often, a politician will come along who shares your ideas and makes it all the way to the very top. You support her, champion her policies across the media, and slowly change the climate of public opinion. Just as Friedrich Hayek advised in 1945. And if she crashes and burns, and some of your staff leave, you keep going. You distance yourself from her delivery and carry on beating the free market drum. There's obviously the, the, the philosophy, the ideology, but there's also the delivery. And I think what happened in autumn, last autumn, was very poor on delivery for lots of reasons. I thought her thinking was, was um, sound. The execution of it uh, obviously invited some, some criticism. Uh, her, her ideas, um, namely that Britain must depend on growth in order to improve living standards and make life better for ordinary people, I think is as sound today as it was when she expounded it. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and Nina was voiced by Artemis Irvine. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. This is actually my last full episode of Westminster Insider, but I'll be back in Aggie's episode a bit next week. And Aggie, the great woman herself, is with me. 
Oh. No. <laughs> it's very, very, very sad. Um, but at least listeners have, and I have next week, to enjoy as well. It's the long goodbye. It's the long goodbye, um, but it is genuinely devastating. I know, I'll miss you. But what an, what an amazing full episode to go out on as well. That was really, really, really fascinating. Oh, thank you. There's more to all of that world that I'd love to go into well, in the future. To um, so next week, I am looking at, with your help... The sort of future of the left of the Labour Party. Obviously, they had their time in the sun, I should say, under Corbyn. Um, And there's been a lot of sort of chatter about the iron grip, and I'm using quotation marks there, that Keir Starmer has on the current Labour Party. So I'm trying to work out exactly what has happened to sort of the MPs on the left of the party in the socialist campaign group what they're doing at the moment and what they might do in the future. So I've spoken to people in that campaign group, I've spoken to people on the sort of more right of the party and people who've been around in the Labour Party for a long time um, to try and get an answer to that, obviously with your help, Alva. It's such a good idea for an episode. I'm so glad that we're looking into it. I mean, at the moment, it feels like the left of the Labour Party is a bit irrelevant. They've been completely sort of, as you say, with the iron grip of Keir Starmer, they've been mostly marginalised, but they could come to wield quite a lot of influence in a Labour government, depending on the size of Keir Starmer's majority. And actually, everyone in the Labour Party is really aware of that. So I think it's such a good thing to be looking into. And also, we should say, you've got some cracking guests for this one. Thank you very much. Um, certain, Certain rather dark figure, shall we say certain prince of darkness (laughs) yeah um anyway thank you for listening aggie and i sort of will be back next week see you then hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.